We present the unbelievable truth, the panel game built on truth and lies. In the chair, please welcome David Mitchell. Hello and welcome to the unbelievable truth. Joining me tonight to lie, dissemble and deceive are four of the finest comedians in the country that were available for the money. Please welcome Marcus Brigstock, Henning Vane, Graham Garden and Lucy Porter. The rules are as follows. Each panellist will present a short lecture that should be entirely false, save for five pieces of true information which they should attempt to smuggle past their opponents, cunningly concealed amongst the lies. Points are scored by truths that go unnoticed, while other panellists can win points if they spot a truth or lose points if they mistake a lie for a truth. We'll begin with Marcus Brigstock. Marcus recently appeared on BBC One's Saturday night game show, Hole in the Wall, in which lycra-clad celebrities... (laughs) are knocked into a swimming pool by a moving polystyrene wall, accompanied by the sound of Lord Reith rotating in his grave. (laughs) Marcus, your subject is soap, defined by my dictionary as an anionic surfactant used in conjunction with water for washing and cleaning. Off you go, Marcus. Fingers on buzzers, the rest of you. No matter how much soap I use, I cannot wash away the shame of appearing on Hole in the Wall. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we don't want a point. We just no. all wanted to buzz, didn't we? Yeah. I just, okay. Oh, it was good. You were good. <clears throat> mm, thank you. You made really good shapes. Mm. <laughs> soap. Two nuns in the bath. One says, "Where's the soap?" The other says, "Do you suppose anyone will find it odd that we're taking a bath together?" <laughs> Not unless they find all these children, says the other. <laughs> The word soap comes from the Greek word soap, meaning soap. <laughs> soap. Soap was first developed and used by early cave women who boiled up mammal fat and scented it with exotic bat guano and buffalo urine to entice their men. The Pope uses soap on a rope, I hope. <laughs> A lovely thought, isn't it? Graham. Well, I, I think Marcus does hope that. <laughs> That's true. Marcus, do you hope that? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> Bad luck, Graham. You tricked me. Yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> Washing a child's mouth out with soap and water has been clinically proven to make them swear more. <laughs> Her Majesty the Queen uses rose-scented soap, especially uh, made in the shape of Balmoral Castle, rendering it unusable because of the pointy turrets. <laughs> Lucy. <laughs> I think it does smell of roses. I'd like to think the Queen smells of roses. Yes, yes, indeed. What a royalist remark. <laughs> um, yes, the Queen uses rose-scented soap. That's absolutely right, that Lucy. And, in fact, Marcus was going to go on to yes, say... Yes, as part of the same set of truth, she has a rubber ducky with a crown on it. She then leaves the bath in for Philip, who does amusing foreign accents using the sponge as an offensive <laughs> puppet. <laughs> I think I should point out that that last bit is not part of the same truth. As far as we know. (laughs) The malodorous French use roughly half as much soap per head as we do in the UK. That's per head. They do use more than that on their foul-smelling bodies. (laughs) Lucy? I think the French use half as much soap as we do. Yes, that's absolutely true, yeah. (laughs) The... I am both a royalist and a racist, so... Um... Yeah, pretty much the same thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, the per capita use of soap in the UK is 40 ounces per year, whereas in France it's only 22.6 ounces. 
Mm. They'd probably call it something in grams. Um, <laughs> the largest bar of soap ever made was over a mile long and belonged to a collector in Austin, Texas, known as Soapy Jim to his mates. <laughs> Henning. Uh, I don't think it belonged to Soapy Jim, but I do believe that there is a one-mile soap. No, there isn't. No, I, I... Wait, but they could just make one, couldn't they? They could, but, yeah, they, but could. they haven't. Yeah. <laughs> Crucially. Yes, it is, it's one of those things that is both possible and not the case. <laughs> because Arabs read from right to left, it means that soap ads showing clean laundry on the right, soap suds in the middle and dirty stuff on the left are a disaster in the Middle East. <laughs> Henning. Yeah, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? They do read from the right to the left, mm -hmm. so, uh, yeah, they would have to reorder the photos. Yes, that's absolutely true, yeah. <laughs> a 1970s ad campaign displaying before and after in exactly that left-to-right way was a failure in Saudi Arabia in the 1970s, so... <laughs> Yes. Amy Winehouse recently launched her own line of soaps and cosmetics called Junk Rinse 8000. <laughs> Silit Bang can be safely used to wash children's eyes. <laughs> None of you? Really? Odd. <laughs> the most expensive bar of soap in the world contains sweet-smelling fat from Italian Prime Minister <laughs> Silvio Berlusconi. <laughs> Wash yourself clean with a bar of cathedral-faced crooked lounge singer and come up smelling of roses. <laughs> Soap made from human fat is not uncommon. In Argentina, a woman has made over 100 bars and two sculptures from her own blubber. <laughs> Thank you, Marcus. And you've managed to smuggle two truths past the rest of the panel, and they are that the most expensive bar of soap in the world contains sweet-smelling fat from Italian Prime Minister <laughs> Silvio Berlusconi. <laughs> it was reported by the BBC in 2005 that a bar of soap purportedly made from the excess fat taken from the Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi had been sold for $18,000 by artist Gianna Motti, having bought the fat from a clinic where Mr Berlusconi had a liposuction operation performed. It's really disgusting, isn't it? Um, and the other truth is that in Argentina, a woman has made over 100 bars of soap from her own fat, also got from liposuction, and two sculptures. Anyway, that means you've scored two points. OK, we turn now to Henning Vane. Henning is following in the fine tradition of German comedians, a tradition he also started. <laughs> Your subject, Henning... Your subject, Henning, is pudding, typically a soft dessert containing flour, milk and eggs, plus flavouring and sweetener. Fingers on buzzers, everyone else. Off you go, Henning. Pudding was invented by Jesus in 1 AD <laughs> using figs, wine and old sandals creating a taste not too dissimilar to Heinz treacle sponge. <laughs> Jesus named his signature dish Arabella Shaim Shawam, which is Aramaic for Heinz treacle sponge. <laughs> Britain had to wait until 1066 before getting any pudding. The first pudding ever to grace these shores was Britain syrup pudding, which was munched by Norman invaders in Hastings after the battle. 
Marcus. I fear I might regret it, but I think that might be true. I think the Normans might have bought pudding over here. I'm sure they did, but I don't think they were the first. <laughs> and there was probably pudding here already. No, so, fair enough. So, no, sorry. Norman soldiers can be seen eating this pudding at the far end of the Bayeux tapestry. <laughs> if only I'd waited till you'd said that. <laughs> <laughs> that might still be true. The English concept of pudding is almost impossible to understand. And in 2003, it was voted Britain's most ambiguous word by foreign students, just ahead of flaps and all-inclusive. <laughs> Everyone will know a pudding to be both a starch-based dessert, a savoury dish and a conglomerate rock. Lucy. I think all those definitions of pudding were true. Yes, but what Henning said was that everyone will know them to be all those things. Well, I did. Yeah, but you're not everyone. <laughs> I'm every woman, as Shaka Khan it's... told me. Or, or you mustn't believe everything Shaka Khan tells you. <laughs> Oh, you're just like my mum. <laughs> Voltaire, however, had desserts in mind when he said, the English plays are like the English puddings. No one has any taste for them but themselves. Marcus. Yeah, Voltaire was sort of stroppy like that, wasn't he? Yeah, I think he might have said that. Yes, he did. Well done. <laughs> the Lord Chamberlain, honorary chairman of the Pudding Makers Association, responded with the equally droll repost, get stuffed, you Ponzi frog. <laughs> but not always did British pudding makers have the authority's support. In 1647, Cromwell's Commonwealth forbade plum puddings for Christmas. Marcus. I, I think that's true, and the only reason I think it is is because of the, the very aggressive turn that We Wish You a Merry Christmas takes with regard to pudding. Yeah. <laughs> where suddenly it's a we wish you a Merry Christmas and then suddenly this list of demands comes out. Yeah. We all want some figgy pudding. Yeah. We won't go until we've got one. Yeah. I mean, it's bordering on a sit-in and so I yeah. wonder whether a ban on pudding is maybe what prompted that, yeah. that degree of fury around, around figgy pudding. You've correctly analysed it as a protest song. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, you're absolutely right. In 1647, Cromwell's Commonwealth forbade plum pudding for Christmas. Grief. And also, to make it worse, mince pies. And, you know, and the Irish complain about Cromwell. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Cromwell's edict led to an outbreak of Christmas riots, with holly used as a symbol of political protest. This came following the rum parliament expenses scandal in which Sir Arthur Hazelrick bought 15 plum puddings from John Lewis for his second home in Pimlico. <laughs> Several puddings to have found themselves on the wrong side of the law. There was the cocaine pudding that appeared in La Rousse Gastronomique in 1938. Marcus. I think that may be true. That is absolutely true, yes. Mm. It's, um... <clears throat> It described its cocaine pudding as not only a very tasty dessert, but also an excellent medicine. <laughs> there was the cocaine pudding that appeared in La Rousse Gastronomique in 1938. Uh, the razor blade and cannery pudding made famous by Delia Smith. And Angela Merkel's crystal meth cake. <laughs> 
As recently as 2005, two Scottish artists were forbidden from making a black pudding from their own blood by Edinburgh Environmental Health Office. Graham. Well, they should have been if they weren't. <laughs> well, fortunately, they were. They so were. You're well, quite good. right. Yes. yes. The same department that made urinating in the city streets mandatory in 1986. <laughs> the Philippines gave to the world Filipino chocolate pudding, a stew of pig's guts in a rich pig gut sauce. It is the only chocolate pudding that contains no palm oil or chocolate. <laughs> and, and is therefore 100% rainforest friendly. <laughs> Apart from the ingredient of rare pigs, which are caught by setting fire to the rainforest. <laughs> <laughs> the profile of puddings was raised globally with the rise of Russia's former president, Vladimir Putin whose surname means pudding in Russian. <laughs> the surname of his successor, Dmitry Medvedev, means sent to bed without any. <laughs> Thank you, Henning. Um, and Henning, you managed to smuggle only one truth past the rest of the panel which is that Filipino chocolate pudding is a stew of pig's guts in a rich pig gut sauce. Um, so that means you've scored one point. <clears throat> one famous British pudding is spotted dick. I'll avoid the obvious jokes, partly because of taste and decency concerns, but mainly because I don't personally find such puerile subject matter particularly amusing. And neither would you if you had a wart on your penis. <laughs> Right, it's now the turn of Lucy Porter. Your subject, Lucy, is rabbits, or any of several soft-furred, large-eared, rodent-like burrowing mammals of the family Leporidae. Off you go, Lucy. Although they may appear cute and fluffy, male rabbits will fight each other by squirting urine and even using their teeth to castrate one another in pursuit of their female companions. <laughs> yeah. Henning? Yeah, I uh, bust to indicate that I think that might be true. <laughs> Well, the, the male rabbits... Yeah, they're, they're squaring up to each other and using urine and all. And trying to castrate each other. Yeah, yeah that's absolutely true. <laughs> the official advice is that sexually mature male rabbits should be housed separately as violent fights might occur, during which the mature males try to castrate each other. Same thing with I Chelsea fans. I used to bet fans. on them. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you both said it at the same time. Yeah. He said I heard same the as Chelsea, Chelsea fans. fans, and I said I used to bet on them fights. Right. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Both smashing remarks. <laughs> <laughs> um, We're on good form, we are. Yeah. Aren't we? <laughs> uh, carry on, Lucy. Right. <laughs> Singing duo Chaz and Dave, whose real names are, of course, Toby and Gideon, bless you. Um, <laughs> such a someone, cute someone allergic to Chaz and Dave. <laughs> Singing duo Chaz and Dave, whose real names are, of course, Toby and Gideon, were responsible for the first example of the Delia effect in 1980s thanks to their hit Rabbit, featuring the lyric, You've got more rabbit than Sainsbury's, why don't you give it a rest? At the time, Sainsbury's didn't sell Rabbit, but they were so inundated with requests following the release of the song that they began to stock bunny meat. Henning. That sounds entirely plausible. 
because Chess and Dave Day were well popular. Uh, <laughs> and often looked to for cookery advice. <laughs> no, that's not true. Sorry. Well, it is an odd line. You've got more rabbit than Sainsbury's. Cause... Then maybe they went to Sainsbury's, see that they didn't have any at Sainsbury's, and then it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? <laughs> no, because then what they'd be saying is that not you don't talk a lot. They'd be saying you're entirely silent. <laughs> Or you maybe talk a bit. No, having, but rabbit, having more rabbit, rabbit means someone talks a lot, doesn't yes, it? Yes, yes. So and ha- if they, you have got more rabbit than Sainsbury's... Yes. That means if someone talks a lot... Let's assume Sainsbury's have got absolutely... <laughs> they've got no rabbit at all. OK. And just someone says a word a day, then yeah. that person will still have more rabbit than Sainsbury's. This, this is... A, this is exactly my point. It's not something you'd say to a verbose person. It would, it's something you'd say to anyone who is not mute. <laughs> it's, not, it's not to say, you know, rabbit, 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 you've got more rabbit than Sainsbury's. And in fact, more than that, you've got more rabbit than someone with a lot of rabbit. <laughs> I don't know where. We're at rabbit shop. And now I see where you're coming yeah. from. <laughs> I think for our German guest to have grasped the linguistic peculiarities of Chaz and Dave deserves a point in itself, surely. (laughs) I've seen them live. Have you seen them live? I've seen them in uh, in Camden Electric Ballroom. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. They were singing it all. It was hilarious. It was was right old knees up, it was. (laughs) (laughs) You may not be aware that Spain is one of the list of places named after domestic animals, a list that also includes turkey, puppy, a new guinea pig, and Kathmandu. Because Spain literally means the land of the rabbits. Napoleon's most humiliating defeat was at the hands of an army of rabbits. The emperor had organised a hunting party and a sycophantic lackey brought thousands of rabbits to ensure the imperial court had plenty to shoot at. Unfortunately, the rabbits were tame and when Napoleon approached them, they thought they were about to be fed and rushed at him, driving him back to his carriage and making him look like a ripe pranny. Penny. That, that shooting incident with Napoleon, that's true. Yes, that is absolutely true. Well done. <laughs> And, in fact, he also suffered from a fear of cats, so I imagine a lot of furry animals running at him would have been particularly terrifying. (laughs) Beatrix Potter, famous for writing and illustrating children's books, had a rabbit killed with chloroform to provide the model for Peter Rabbit. She also stuffed and mounted Squirrel Nutkin and removed Mrs Tiggerwinkle's internal organs with an ice pick. (laughs) Graham? I bet she had a stuffed Peter Rabbit to model her pictures on. Yes, she did. Absolutely. Well done. It's um, probably why he has such a lugubrious expression on his face <laughs> yeah. in the books. Yes, it was. She had her own pet rabbit, Peter, killed with chloroform and boiled oh, its Lord. carcass. And her own pet? Well, I thought she'd done some contract killing on just an average field rabbit. <laughs> Vicious Beatrix Potter. Yeah, and she also shot a squirrel out of a tree so she could study it as a model for Squirrel Nutkin. <laughs> and chloroformed a bullfrog, then dissected it to help her create Jeremy Fisher. (laughs) I was going to go on to say, in later years, Potter offered to write a book starring her own children as the lead characters, but... (laughs) 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 They nervously declined. (laughs) During Bugs Bunny's long career, both the Broccoli Institute of America and the Utah Celery Company lobbied hard to get the rabbit to switch to their vegetables. Marcus. Well, I think the celery people had a crack at uh, Bugs Bunny. Celery and what was the other vegetable you said? 
Brilliant. Uh, broccoli. Broccoli, yeah. I yes. I had a crack at it. Yeah, that's absolutely true. They both lobbied hard. <laughs> and Mel Blanc, the voice of Bugs, would have approved as he was allergic to carrots. <laughs> Thank you, Lucy. Lucy, you managed to smuggle one truth past everyone else, which is that Spain literally means the land of rabbits. The name España or Spain derives from the Carthaginian word for rabbit, Cepan. Sorry, my Carthaginian's terrible. Um, That means you scored one point. A jackrabbit can jump as high as 15 feet, sometimes higher if the hot plate is turned to maximum. Pet rabbits are frequently named according to their individual characteristics, hence Fluffy, Twitcher, Whiskers, Squeaker and Thumper. My rabbit, Boomp Boomp, was also named after the sound it made, after it was run over. (laughs) Now... (laughs) It's all right, Everett, it's not a true story. I strangled it. Now it's the turn of Graham Garden. Your subject, Graham, is the taxi, a type of vehicle for hire which conveys passengers between locations of their choice. Off you go, Graham. Right, everybody knows that the term taxi dates back to the ancient Aztec civilization that flourished in South America. Aztecs, of course, never discovered the wheel, but centuries later in ancient Rome, a form of taximeter was a device fitted to the axle of a cart that released small wooden balls to denote the distance travelled. I, I, I suspect oh, okay. that may be true. Oh, what? They measured distance with wooden balls dropping every mile or so. Yes, they did. Yes, they went to them and did that. Horse-drawn cabs were introduced after the Victorians discovered the horse. Today, <laughs> today most people believe that only good-looking drivers were allowed to drive the so-called handsome cabs, Whereas spotty-faced youths had to drive the inferior acne carriages. (laughs) Now, despite the belief that the name has something to do with acne or even hackney, it actually comes from the French word acne, an East London borough or skin condition. (laughs) The introduction of the internal combustion engine made the cabs too heavy for the horses to pull. So... (laughs) So the vehicles had to make their way under their own steam. In 1914, the French general Galliani urgently needed to transport 6,000 troops from Paris to fight in the Battle of the Marne, so he sent them in a fleet of taxis. It would have been a triumphant victory, but the drivers refused to go south of the river. (laughs) Marcus. I think he did send them in a fleet of taxis. Yes, he did. Well done. Well done. He sent approximately 6,000 of the French Reserve Infantry to the front in taxis. Hence, the Battle of the Marne was won and Paris was saved. You know, hooray. Or, as Henning would say, boo. (laughs) (laughs) So why had that topic to be brought up again? (laughs) It's not the the war we usually talk about, it's the other one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, first time lucky. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're laughing now. (laughs) Today, all taxi drivers are exempt from the highway code. But 
but London taxi drivers are still obliged to carry a bale of hay and a sack of oats in their cabs to feed the horses. And Lizzie. That is one of those things, isn't it, that's just never quite been repealed, some weird bylaw. And no, you fall into oh, Graham's the trap double... there because it was repealed in 1976. <laughs> so it, it was exactly that kind of annoying fact, and then it was destroyed in 1976. And this from the USA. In Ohio, it is illegal to charge a fare to anyone riding on the roof of a taxi. And in Massachusetts, taxi drivers are prohibited from making love in the front seat of their taxi while they're on duty. Lucy. That seems sensible. <laughs> I, I think that should be a universal rule. No shagging in the front. Thank you, Bob. Sort of narrows the option here. <laughs> Interesting, though. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think I've just made myself a bit more popular than I was? I'm not sure. No, that is absolutely true. In Massachusetts, taxi drivers are prohibited from making love in the front seat of their taxi while on duty. It also says here that Wyoming has a law that specifically bans couples from having sex while standing inside a shop's walk-in meat freezer. <laughs> the knowledge requires taxi drivers to have a working knowledge of current affairs. And... <laughs> to, be able, to be able to express views on immigration, <laughs> politics, traffic congestion, <laughs> young people and the X Factor. <laughs> when taxis were first fitted with the modern taxi meter, the cabbies of Stuttgart carried the inventor, Wilhelm Brunn, through the streets and threw him in the river. Henning. I think that would be the right reaction. <laughs> uh, well, Entirely you're... appropriate. Well, you're absolutely right. It's true. Um... <laughs> He invented it in 1891, and it was disliked by the cab drivers of Stuttgart as they didn't want their incomes regulated by machines. It's a bit like the Matrix, isn't it? <laughs> See, Germans are rebellious. <laughs> Just in a terrifyingly organised way. <laughs> Thank you, Graham. Um... And, Graham, you managed to smuggle one truth past the rest of the panel, which is that the name Hackney Carriage came from the French word Akenay, meaning an ambling horse or mare. So that means you scored one point. <laughs> which brings us to the final scores. In joint second place, with two points each, it's Lucy Porter, Henning Vane and Graham Garden... And he's, he's already getting excited. In first place, with an unassailable four points, is this week's winner, Marcus Brigstock. <laughs> and, and that's about it for this week. All that remains is for me to thank our guests. They were all truly unbelievable, and that's the unbelievable truth. Goodbye. The Unbelievable Truth was devised by John Naismith and Graham Garden and featured David Mitchell in the chair with panellists Graham Garden, Henning Vane, Lucy Porter and Marcus Brigstock. The chairman's script was written by Dan Gaster and the producer was John Naismith. It was a random production for BBC Radio 4. <laughs> <laughs>